Father, we thank you today for yet another opportunity to gaze into your word and to see there the image of the Lord and be transformed from one degree of glory to the next by beholding the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're grateful for a time in which everyone is mandated to wear masks that in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all, with unmasked face, behold as in a glass the glory of the Lord. We thank you for that today, Father. May we never take for granted the privilege that we have as a kingdom of priests to approach your throne of grace and to receive timely grace. And we need that timely grace now for you to allow us to understand and apply your word. And grant us the serious sense that we are accountable to you both now and in the day of evaluation. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Increment 99 of Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. The title today will simply be Sabbatismas 2, the second one. We did one already. Sabbatismas. And that's one of those hapax legomenas in the scripture. Meaning, it's only used once in all the scripture. Even though it's synonym to it, sabaton is used hundreds of times perhaps, or at least a hundred times in the scripture. So this is sabatismos, Roman numeral two. And we will be going over a passage that we've already examined in some detail, but I think it needs a little more attention. So we'll begin with Hebrews 4, 1 and do a little bit more extensive commentary up through verse 9 or 10. Hebrews 4.1, Therefore, while the promise remains to enter into his rest, let us be intensely concerned, lest any one of you think he has come too late to enter it. The idea here is that the rest being spoken of is not entry into a literal land of promise in the time of the Exodus generation, but that rest is metaphorical for a rest which remains for us to enter, and a Sabbath that remains for us even today to observe. Verse 2, for good news has also been proclaimed. We could say the gospel has also been preached to us as it was to them. They had good news proclaimed to them that God had a land for them, a land of inheritance flowing with milk and honey for the taking. We have received the gospel of the good news of future world and that we can even enter into it now to some discernible degree. And that's the good news that we have received. So, for good news has also been proclaimed to us as it was to them. But they didn't profit from the message. He's speaking now of the vast majority of the desert generation. They did not profit from the message they heard, not uniting with those who heard by faith. That speaks specifically of Caleb, for example, who had a spirit of faith, and Joshua, and the generation that would come after them would in fact go into the land, but Joshua, as we're going to learn, was not able to give them rest. He was not able to bring them fully into the rest that the writer's talking about. There's another Joshua who does that. The same name, Yehoshua, Jesus our Lord. So the idea here is that the PT is urging his readers, just as the Holy Spirit is urging them, and us today, 
to become united with those who heard the word by faith. There's a list of examples of people who did that in Hebrews 11, verses 4 through 40. And faith is always approved by God, always delights God, always pleases God, no matter what historical era or epoch it's exercised in, as we learn from Hebrews 11. So that includes our own era and our own time and our own specific scenario. So this means a, a faith solidarity, not just with Caleb and Joshua, but with people of faith in all epochs of history, throughout all of time. Hebrews 4.3, for we who are believing are entering into rest. Those with the spirit of faith, namely Joshua and Caleb, entered into this symbolic rest by faith. We who are believing are entering into rest, just as he who said, quote, as I swore in my wrath, if they will enter my rest. That's a Hebraism or an idiom, an idiomatic way of saying they will not enter my rest. So we're still on a midrash or an exposition of Psalm 95, Septuagint 94. And here specifically in verse 11. And yet, now the, the PT goes into gematria, or make that gezer shava, and yet his works have been in existence since the founding of the universe. Verse 4, for somewhere he speaks about the seventh day in this way. Now he augments the teaching of rest here with Sabbath or the seventh day. And he quotes, and God rested from all his works on the seventh day, Genesis 2.2. 2. And again in verse 5. In our present text, he's referring to his exposition of Psalm 94.11 in the Septuagint. If they enter into my rest, tain katapausen mu my rest, enter into my rest. Therefore, verse 6, since it remains for some to enter into it, And those who were formerly evangelized did not enter because of disobedience. He again specifies a certain day today. Saying in David, he attributes the Psalm 94 in the Septuagint or Psalm 95 in our English translation to David, who was one of the prophets in whom God spoke in former times, as Hebrews 1.1 says. So there is a connectedness all the way from Hebrews 1.1, a connectedness of fluency, I like to call it, from 1.1 all the way up here, 4.5 and into 4.11. Saying in David, after such a long time, hundreds of years after this call to enter into the rest of the Canaan land, God was still calling for people to go into rest in the day of David. Today, saying in David, after such a long time, just as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. There's a way to enter into God's rest that has to do with hearing his voice and not hardening your heart. It has to do with what we're going to find out is going to the school of Christ, matriculating at Christ's college, as we're going to find out. So today applies to the day when the Hebrew writer proclaimed this homily, 
and it, pro- it also applies to our own day. And then it says in verse 8, for if Joshua, now interestingly, Joshua here, very interestingly, is the same name in the same spelling for Jesus in the scriptures. And it's the same as we have for our Lord Jesus Christ, only we're dealing with a different person here. Jesus, which comes out to Jesus. It's a word for Jesus, only, of course, it's referring to Joshua. Yahushua is a name that means Yahweh saves. God is a God who saves. The name Jesus, as I've said many times, means salvation. When we see Jesus, we are watching the salvation of God, standing firm, watching the salvation of God. To watch the salvation of God, Exodus 14, 13, is to see Jesus, who is embodying our salvation. And as we've said up to now many times, who, is, who has universally saving significance. Verse 8 again. For if Joshua had given them rest, and he didn't, Jesus, who is superior to the angels and who is superior to Moses, is also shown here to be superior to Joshua in giving people, his people, rest, the real rest, the true rest. So if Joshua had given them rest, God wouldn't have been speaking in David that's what he's talking about in the later psalm, of another later day. This day, and there'll be some reiterations of what I've said before in this message, but this day corresponds to the day of eternity, Hameron Aonos in 2 Peter 3.18. The rest that we are to enter is on the seventh day or the eternal day. And that is found in 2 Peter 3.18 where the epistle ends with this verse. But grow in grace now and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory, hedoxa. The glory, we see him crowned with glory and honor. The glory of the great king, the honor of the great high priest. So grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory both now, N-U-N, noon, now. Compare that with Hebrews 2.8. Now we don't see all things under his feet, but we do now see Jesus both now and into the eternal day. That's what 2 Peter 3.18 says. Last word of advice from the Apostle Peter, whose words in First and Second Peter are remarkably synchronic with Hebrews and like Hebrews, synonymous with Hebrews, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we have much more to say about grace, things that we have never said before about grace and its relationship to renaissances in history. But we'll be having to introduce that slowly. It's a complex subject. The eternal day, in turn, corresponds to what Moltmann again calls, quote, the dynamic presence of eternity in time. When we're entering into rest, when we're observing the Sabbath, we are entering into the dynamic presence of eternity in time. Participation in this rest, in time, is the experience. Now listen carefully to this principle. 
just hitting me now how important it is. Participation in this rest in time is the experience of the dynamic state of being in love. And that's with God's love. By the love of God being poured out in the heart by the Holy Spirit. As Zephaniah 3.17 says, and Pastor Mark Whitmer recently reminded me of this, our friend in Waco, Texas, he will rest in his love in Zephaniah 3.17. He will rejoice over you with singing. So participation in this rest in time is the experience of the dynamic state of being in love by the love of God being poured out into the heart by the Holy Spirit. Please notice the word heart there because it's going to be prominent not only in Hebrews 3, 7, and 8 was it prominent, but it becomes prominent again in Hebrews 4, 12 where the scripture says that the word of God is alive and powerful. That means it is vitally relevant at all times, including our own time. That it's energetic and efficacious. And that it pierces to the separation of soul and spirit and is a critic or a judge of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I asked the question, how does Hebrews 4.12 connect with the rest of Hebrews up to that point? It seems like a kind of a disconnected statement, a non sequitur, but it isn't at all. In fact, the word heart in Hebrews 4.12 relates to heart in Psalm 94, 7 and 8. Psalm 95 in the English translation, Hebrews 3, 7 and 8, 4, 7, 3, 12, etc. The heart. It examines the heart. Now this love of God being poured out into the heart is poured out by the Holy Spirit, whom Paul says was given to us. In another place, he adds, given to us as a pledge and a seal of our final redemption. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 and Ephesians 4, 30. So no one can say, including people listening here to the message, listening Whenever you listen to this message, no one of us can say it's too late for me because entry into rest was only for them. No one can use that as an excuse because the land of promise is now metaphorical for the rest of God being all in all. The rest of God when he's all and in all, which, of which today there is a preview of this experience by believers who enter into the school of Christ and find rest. He gives us rest like Joshua couldn't. Joshua, Moses' successor, was unable to give the children of the desert sojourners this rest. Even those who entered the land were not given rest by Joshua. The rest that the PT is talking about is still available to be had. Jesus gives us this rest. And so we have a very important connection with Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 here. In fact, I think it's almost impossible for me to look at Hebrews 4, 8 without reverting to and referring to Matthew eleven twenty-eight. The greater Joshua, the greater Yehoshua. Notice that Joshua was not able to give them rest. Now notice Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, where Jesus the Christ, our Lord, says, Come to me, all of you who are toiling and burdened. And this, of course, refers ultimately to the toil and the burden of Adam, the Adamic ontology, laboring in the ground, the cursed ground, bringing up thorns and thistles, 
So he says, come to me, all of you who are toiling and burdened. That means in the Adamic ontology. And I, I, the word here for I is interesting. It's called a crassus or a crashing in of something. It's a syntactical term called crassus. We kind of have the word crash is related to it. Cago is the word he uses. Cago, K-A-G-O. And this is a crash of this word chi, which means and, plus ego, meaning I or ego, chi plus ego. You crash them together and it's like I myself, I in particular. And we could even say Jesus is saying, I in particular will give you rest, not Joshua, not David, not Moses, not any of the prophets of old, not the angels. I, Kago, I in particular, I in contradistinction to anyone else, I and not Joshua, I would say, I in particular will give you rest. I will give you rest. Joshua didn't give them the rest that is being spoken of here. I will give you rest, Jesus said. Then he says, all of you, that means without exception, all of you, take up my yoke. Now here we have the, the word yoke here, used by the rabbis, meant the curriculum in a school. Sometimes the curriculum would be very difficult and he said, take up my yoke, I would say their curriculum, and learn from me. Let me be your professor, because I'm gentle and humble in heart, unlike the Pharisees, who were very difficult. They said and did not. They required you to do what they themselves would not do. They lift they put heavy burdens on you, Jesus said in Matthew 23. They don't lift a finger to help. Kind of like politicians. All of you take up my curriculum and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart. Then you'll find rest. Isn't that a remarkable thing? I think it is. But I'm simple. You'll find rest. Now he uses here the word ana, A-N-A-P. A-U-S-I-N. Anna Pausen. Anna Pausen rather than Kata Pausen. But the essential meaning is the same. Anna Pausen. Kata Pausen. Kata Pausen is used in Hebrews 3.11 and 3.18. Hebrews 4.1. 4.3, used twice. 4.5, we just read it. 4.10 and 4.11. Then you'll find rest. What is Jesus saying? You'll find rest not just in the day to come, in future world. You'll find rest as soon as you enter my curriculum of learning under my word. Taking in my word. All of you take up my curriculum and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart. Then you'll find rest. For my yoke is pleasant. Learning is leisurely under Jesus Christ's teaching. Even the philosophers understood the benefits of learning by leisure. That leisure learning seems to stick with people longer. It becomes a pleasure to learn in the right environment for teaching and learning. For my yoke is pleasant, he said, and my burden is light. Now, any of you that have gone to college, and I remember all the way back at the University of Vermont saying, I got a heavy burden, which means I'm taking 18 credits this semester. That was a heavy what? Academic burden. Someone else would say, and I think 12 credits was considered a light burden. And so, again, both burden and yoke have to do with 
matriculation of classes in the school of Christ, as it were. Now, we take many classes here. We're taking cosmology, which is the study of the creation of the universe and its sustainment, its transformation. We're taking eschatology, the study of the end things. We're taking Christology. We're taking theology. We're taking all kinds of ologies here in the school of Christ. And it can be pleasant. All of you take up my curriculum and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart. Then you'll find rest. For my yoke is pleasant and my burden is light. Now, this is as if Jesus is saying, this makes it very intensely practical. He's saying this. I, not Joshua, not anyone else, will give you rest on a powwow as opposed to katapao in 4.8. But the rest that Jesus speaks of begins when we take his academic and spiritual yoke on us and matriculate in his school. That's what church is for, not a lot of other things. We let the word of Christ dwell richly in our hearts in Colossians 3. 16, and his peace rules in our hearts and minds. Entering into rest means that the peace of Christ rules in our hearts and minds. That's Colossians 3.15 and Philippians 4.7. Notice there that peace becomes a guide and a ruler in both of those places. And the word of Christ dwells in our hearts at the same time. That's what happens in the school of Christ. Peace, not hysteria. Peace, not agitation. Peace, not anxiety and angst. Peace, ruling the heart. A peace that passes understanding. That comes from learning how to pray and how to cast our burdens upon the Lord. Psalm 55:22 for example. 1 Peter 5:7 for example. We learn that in the school of Christ. The rest Jesus speaks of begins when we take his academic and spiritual yoke on us and matriculate in his school. Our hope for the eternal and universal rest isn't just a delayed consolation for people in a miserable world. We're also granted rest now in the school of Christ as buds. I call them buds. This is usually reserved for SEAL training. But I put it B-U-L-B-U-L. D-S, believers under doctrine. This rest is for believers under doctrine, who learn doctrine in Isaiah 29, 24, and as a result, stop complaining in life. People who unite ourselves with those who hear and believe the always vitally relevant and efficacious and beneficial word of God. There are many characteristics to the word of God. Among them, as we'll see, it is vitally relevant now. It's efficacious to produce this kind of peace and joy and love. And it's beneficial the good word of God is what it's called in, Isaac, in Hebrews 6.5. So in Hebrews 4.9, consequently, and there's much ado about the Sabbath here. Much ado about Sabbath. If I was going to still title my messages with English titles, I might even call this much ado about the Sabbath. Today, many people follow Shakespeare instead and make much ado about nothing 
but we're making much ado about the Sabbath. 4.9, consequently, there remains a Sabbath observance. There's our word, sabbatismos, for the people of God. That still pertains today. There still remains a Sabbath observance for the people of God. It doesn't mean keeping Saturday or starting Friday night into Saturday evening. It doesn't mean Sunday. It doesn't mean keeping a day of the week. The word that the Hebrews writer uses in Hebrews 4.9 for Sabbath observance that remains for the people of God, once again, is a hapax legomena, meaning that it only makes one appearance in all the Greek scriptures. That includes the Septuagint, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. While its other word, its related word, sabbaton, from which it's derived, is used throughout the Old Testament. Here we have sabbatismos, that's the hapax legomena. Miraculously appeared, that word did just now. Sabbatismos. It resonates or chimes with a word that Abraham Heschel uses in God in Search of Man. And the word he uses is Shabbos Dikait. It's S H A B B E S D I K H E I T. Shabbos Dikait. On page 419 of that masterwork, and I do consider God in Search of Man a masterwork, Heschel distinguishes the Sabbath from Shabbastichait. He writes this, and I may have mentioned this before. The Sabbath is one day. Shabbastichait, which we would say in the Greek is Sabbatismos here in 49 is what should permeate all our days, he says. Shabbos Dikait, says Heschel, is spirituality. There it is. And he says also that it's the epitome and spirit of Judaism. If you want to be educated about what Judaism is, and we all should be as Christians if we're going to be respectful of our roots, God in Search of Man, A Philosophy of Judaism by Abraham Joshua Heschel, H-E-S-C-H-E-L, is where to go. And there is much there for Christians as well as Jews. So again, he says the Sabbath is one day. Shabbos Dichait, which I would equate with Sabbatismos in Hebrews 4.9, is what should permeate all our days. It's spirituality, the epitome and spirit of Judaism. Now, Joseph Thayer, whose lexicon is always helpful, describes Sabbatismos as, in part, the blessed rest from toils and troubles looked for in the age to come. Now, it is that. While it's true that this rest is had completely only in the eschatological future, it can be enjoyed even now in a discernible measure and as a very real experience. Sabbatismos involves not only a cessation from works, now, here's where it gets a little more intense. Sabbatismos involves not only a cessation from works, which we relate to a cessation of the Adamic ontology and his toiling in the cursed earth. But it involves also on the positive side a sharing of the peace of God. Again, Jesus says, I give you peace. My peace, not as the world gives it. John 14, 27, Philippians 4, 7. So it refers also to a participation in the uninterruptible joy. One thing about the joy that we experience in our normal human experience in this world, it's interruptible. 
doesn't last long until we're in the school of Christ for a long time and then it permeates and begins to sustain the believer more and more for longer and longer periods of time. And so the participation in the Sabbath isn't just peace, but it's a participation in the uninterruptible eternal joy of God. Rejoice evermore, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. It's a joyous celebration that never ends. This joyous celebration is not only for all of humanity, ultimately, but also for the angels as is hinted at in Hebrews 12.22, where we see myriads of angels in festive assembly in the heavenly Jerusalem. I liken the Sabbath rest that can even be experienced in some measure now as the great calm spoken into the turbulent creation by Jesus himself when he rebuked the winds and the sea in Matthew 8, 26, and his disciples who screamed out, we're going to perish, were quieted. A great calm descended on the situation. The undulating waves were calmed. The winds ceased because Jesus told them to. It's the great calm spoken of when Jesus spoke into the turbulent creation and rebuked the winds and the sea. It's the unspeakable joy in 1 Peter 1.8 that is already full of glory in anticipation of a day when the universal Sabbath and the divine Shekinah glory join as one. Sabbatismos differs from sabbaton as spirituality itself differs from a day of the week. Sabbatismos gives a special character to future world. The idea of it being an observation of an eternal day of Sabbath gives a special characteristic to future world so that we can imagine it more clearly. It's not only the character of peace, but of great joy. Future world is, above all, a joyous world. When we think of peace, we think of the peace that God made by the blood of the cross of his Son, the Son of his love, Colossians 1.13 and 1.20. The Son in whom he has spoken with finality in these last days, Hebrews 1.2. In Ephesians 2:14 and 15, Paul says that Jesus is our peace, who has made all the warring groups of humanity into one new humanity in himself. He did this by destroying the enmity, the hostility, and the animus, the irrational hatred was destroyed, demolished in the body of his own flesh through death. That's a remarkable occurrence. Jesus, the eternal Logos, which the Targums call the Memra. Memra in the Aramaic Targums. The word, the Logos in the Greek, the Memra which the Targums call it. He is the Memra of God, the Logos, the eternal Logos, who is reason itself, with a capital R. He is the end of all unreasonable and irrational animosity and the unintelligible surd, S-U-R-D, of sin. For sin is called a surd, because it is unintelligible to human beings. It's related to the word absurd. There is no reason for sin. 
There's no reason in sin, as there's no reason for unbelief. And unbelief is entirely unreasonable. Unbelief, the essence of the surd of sin, is entirely unreasonable. As Lonergan made clear, the unintelligibility of sin is counterbalanced by the intelligibility and the reasonableness of nature. But it's overcome only by the excessive intelligibility of God's grace. It's not that God is unintelligible, it's that he's excessively intelligible. The reason we don't know him is because there's too much intelligibility about God. There's too much to know about him, and that's wonderful. More on that is coming. We think of a peace when we think of future world, when we think of the Sabbath observance that's an eternal day. We think of peace that isn't what the world gives. It's not even world peace, which is an unrealistic fantasy until Jesus Christ comes. But it's that which Jesus gives. It's an otherworldly peace, a peace that surpasses human ability to understand or to describe or to attribute any reason for. Jesus himself is our peace, in Ephesians 2.14, for again, in the body of his flesh through death, God demolished the enmity between people. I know that's not manifested yet. In fact, not at all. Because the reason why there's so much animosity manifested between people today is because people aren't uniting themselves with those who hear the gospel and believe it. And because they are hardening their hearts. The surd has taken root in society and brought horrific historical decline. This decline will not be brought up by a mere return to human virtue and to adherence to documents like the great Constitution of the United States. It will only be brought up from its terrible decline by faith, by the word of God, by the grace of God. That which is unintelligible called sin, which produces a decline in history, can only be that decline that sin produces can only be brought up by something that has too much intelligibility, excessive intelligibility, and that's the grace of God that goes beyond nature. Man acting in his own nature apart from sin can't bring up history from the decline that sin causes. What, is, what brings history back up is the grace that God gives, which is too intelligible for humans to grasp. A lot more coming on that. You say, that's never heard that before. Well, neither have I. So we'll consider it down the road. Jesus himself is our peace. In him, God demolished the enmity between people and people groups, making one new humanity, a humanity in which Christ is all and in all. There will be no world peace until the otherworldly peace rules the hearts and minds of all people. That's future world. It's a world that's invaded the present, and has begun to conquer the hearts and minds of believers. So believers are the first to receive the efficacious vaccine of God's saving grace. Everybody's going to get it. Those who are mixing or uniting themselves with people who hear by faith just happen to be the first to receive the efficacious vaccine from God. When we think of the joy of future world, we think of the kind of joy that can't be taken away by embittered people. 
or by human institutions and governments, by evil ideologues, unjust tyrants, and seared conscience of criminals. As Jesus told his disciples, whenever a woman is very close to giving birth, she has pain and grief as her hour comes. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the tribulation, he says, because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So also, he goes on to say, you have sorrow and pain now, but you will see me again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. What a remarkable passage in John 16, 21 to 22. Notice that the joy that Jesus speaks of is because of seeing him. You will see me, and your joy will be made complete. Their sorrow... that. 12 that he's speaking to, their sorrow will be at a maximum when the hour of the cross will have come. That's because the cross to them was unintelligible. They didn't know what, what for, why. Why did the Messiah die? But they will see him again after his resurrection, and their joy will be uncontained then and full. Jesus used the analogy of a woman giving birth because he himself knew that kind of pain. A woman can't say, well, Jesus, you don't know the kind of pain it takes to give birth to a child. Well, maybe he knows the kind of birth pains that it takes to produce a new creation, a universal new creation. He knew that kind of pain pain that was multiplied for him because he was about to suffer indescribable pain and sorrow in order to give birth to the new creation. But Jesus would also rise again to be the first person born into the new creation. The person who embodies it. And encompass it encompasses the whole of the new creation in himself. Jesus, our great high priest, as we're going to learn, who has passed through the heavens, Hebrews 4, 14, into heaven's holy of holies, has not only suffered for us, he also suffers with us. That's what compassion means, to suffer together with. He's touched by the feeling of our weakness. He is a compassionate high priest, one who suffers with us. This truth is so vitally relevant to us at this time when the winds of history and the undulating waves of time are seeming to threaten us with perishing. I said seeming, but we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. We have sorrow and pain in this world. I don't know about you. Yes, I do. You've had it. You have it. I have it. I've had it. I've had joy that I never thought I'd have in this life. I've had sorrow and a depth of it that I never thought I'd experience in this life. We all have sorrow and pain in this world. No matter what you do to escape it, you can't escape it. it it's the world. It cannot be avoided. But in this world, we also see Jesus with the eyes of our heart. We see him crowned with the glory of the great king and with the honor of a great high priest. We still have sorrow. And we still have pain. But the sorrow is mitigated by our seeing Jesus in this way with the eyes of our heart. 
When we see him as he is and become like him in bodily resurrection, well, then our joy will be unconquerable and it will conquer once and for all all sorrow and dispel all grief forever. So in future world, all the angels, innumerable myriads, battalions of them, innumerable angelic groups Hebrews 12:22 compared with Deuteronomy 33:2 Matthew 26:53 John 1:51 myriads of angels worship Jesus the man Christ Jesus there the righteous are glad they rejoice before God and celebrate with joy says Psalm 68:3 Septuagint 67, 4. In future world, there is shouting for joy and constant, indefatigable celebration. Celebration you never get tired of. In future world, there is a conflation of sabbatismos and Shekinah, of rest and of glory. God's rest and God's glory and the glory of his Christ permeating everyone and everything, filling the earth, Habakkuk 2.14. This is the rest that remains for the people of God. This is the Sabbath that remains for the people of God to observe. This is the metaphorical seventh day in which work is prohibited and rest commanded. We can enter that rest now in the measure that we cease from our own works, meaning in the measure that we terminate operations of the Adamic ontology, otherwise known as putting off the old man, putting on the new man. In our theological exegesis of Hebrews, and this is a note to be sounded for future messages, in our theological exegesis of Hebrews and as a subject in the curriculum in the School of Christ, we study cosmology, which is the study of the universe. The view put forth in the Hebrews homily is that which was adopted by the early Eastern Church. There's a difference between the Eastern Church and the Western Church and the theologies that each one held to. I'm tending to go east, young man, in my older age. The view I speak of is more the eastern view of the church. It speaks of the creation being consummated by an act or by acts of redemption. Both creation and redemption are divine acts or activities. Both are salvific or related to salvation. For God is the God who saves. He is our salvation. That's Psalm 68, 19, Septuagint 67, 20. God is our salvation as Christ Jesus is, the re is redemption for us and righteousness and holiness. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. No flesh is allowed to boast that means no human in his nature apart from sin and certainly no human under the control of sin and the flesh. No flesh is allowed to boast in 1 Corinthians one thirty-one. No one, listen carefully to this, no one who really knows the Lord would even think of boasting in anything but him. Anyone who knows the God who saves is content to stand firm and watch the salvation that he enacts. Exodus 14, 13. Those who truly understand the Lord stand back and say, this is the Lord's doing, this salvation gig. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Our eyes see Jesus, who is both the creator and the redeemer of all things. To watch his salvation is merely to see Jesus. 
working out our own salvation, Philippians 2.12, is paradoxically watching God doing the saving. Philippians 2.12b to 13a says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is working. Likewise, striving to enter into rest is paradoxically a cessation from striving. It's working to cease from our works. And here's the paradox, the apparent but not real contradiction of our salvation. Here is the paradox of faith. Striving to enter into rest, a cessation from striving. So in closing, I'd like to say that the life of Sabbatismus is us not living, yet living, yet Christ living in us, and us living our lives even now in the flesh by the faithfulness of the Son of God. That's a paradox wrapped in a paradox wrapped in an oxymoron. The life of Sabbatismus in us, and it is us not living and yet living, and yet Christ living in us and us living our lives even now in this flesh by a participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God. That's Galatians 2.20. We were crucified with Christ, and we ought to rely on that fact. That's our confession. We were crucified with Christ, and we ought to re simply rely on that fact. We can't make that fact happen. It has happened. We ought to rely on that fact and then acknowledge it. Romans 6.6, 6, Romans 6.11. That's our confession. Our salvation is an instauration through which we stop living in the Adamic ontology. But we do live in the Christic ontology, as the Latin says, in Christo extra nos, in Christ and outside of ourselves. We don't exist and we don't live in the old man, in Adamic ontology. In fact, that's not living at all, that's death. The mind of the flesh is death. The mind of the spirit is what? Life and peace. Romans 8, 6, and 7. We do live in Christic ontology, but it is Christ living in us and us living by a participation with his faithfulness, his livingness. So the fight of the faith is the strife that's required to stay in rest. That's a principle. The fight of the faith is the strife that's required to stay in rest, to stay at rest, as we do. The Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in our hearts in Romans 5, 5. And we overcome evil with the ultimate good, Romans 12, 21. The ultimate good being divine love. This is the power that redeems the time. This is the efficacious energy that produces second births in history called renaissances. This is the power that pulls history up from its declines before nations perish. We thank you, Father, for this insight, for this message. We thank you for sustaining us, for sustaining Tetelestai Phalanx, we pray for those who are ill, that you'll bring healing. For those who are well, that they will remain well. We thank you, Father, and we, th we ask, too, 
that for all who listen to this message and for all who hear it conversationally through those who do hear, we ask that their soul would prosper and be in good health and that their bodies would prosper similarly and that their spirits and the spirits of all of us would be attuned to heavenly things. We ask it in the name of our heavenly Savior, the man from heaven, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.